Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Guringai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finawa of Tafanganuyatara, where I'm recording today. <sighs> what a week. It has been a week, that is for sure. You have been so busy, haven't you? I just feel like oh I my gosh. Yeah. seen you on the WhatsApp <laughs> at all. Like, where's Jen? Where is she? It's been very busy. My life is a bit chaotic right now. Everything is sort of just very go, go, go. So very limited time to engage in my favorite things, which is send you memes. I love your memes. I would read them all day long. Wow. On that note. <laughs> what sparked joy for you this week? It was a very busy week, but I did have a few moments of joy. So my daughter turned 11, which was amazing. Exciting. I made her like three cakes. She got cupcakes. She got a cherry chocolate black forest cake that she shared with me. And then I made her cake, which was a ring cake that looked like a donut. And it was very fun. We got a bedroom TV finally because I had been using my computer and that was just not working for me. Mm-hmm. And I really like watching Planet Earth in bed because I am a thousand years old and it brings me joy. And you know what? I have enough disposable income to do that. So that's what I've done. And then I had um, coffee with a friend on Thursday, but she was running late. And so I had like this extra 20 minute window and I had brought my my like notebook for writing down all of my plot related things. And I did some work and I felt really good about it. That is an excellent use of time. Go you. It can be done. Um, How about you? What sparked joy for you this week? I guess the biggest thing for me is I had, uh, I'm officially a New Zealand citizen, so I had my citizenship party on Sunday last week, so after we recorded, and yeah, it was just really lovely. You know, I like I had the host anxiety you always get where I was like, oh gosh, no one's going to turn up and it's going to be a disaster because loads of people were cancelling in the morning. But, you know, I invited like 50 people and RSVP'd the space for 30 because I'm like, everyone won't come. Like, they never do. Um. And yeah, and so my mate Hannah picked me up because I was free. I'd ordered a cake and I'm like, this cake's too big. I'm not going to get it on the bus. And like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, well, Hannah offered to help. So just take her up on the offer. So she came and picked me up and we went down there and yeah, everyone turned up and it was just really lovely. Like I was just so overwhelmed looking around at one point and just feeling so loved and knowing that I have this wonderful little community here and this life that I've made by myself. You did that. You did that. No one did that for you. Yeah. I'm really proud of you. And congratulations. You have added yet another passport to your collection. Exciting. Well, I need to apply for the passport, but in theory, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You have uh, added the potential of another passport to your collection. I'm still at one. (laughs) Not for much longer. Hopefully. It says it's been received. That's that's the the communication I've gotten about my citizenship application. It has been received. Unlike my visa to leave the country and come back, which was... Received and granted in about the same 20 seconds, I think because I had a prior grant approval number and they were just like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Push her through. Mm, That helps. That helps a lot. Definitely. (laughs) Glad I took the extra five minutes to read my email and like look through it. Hey, just as an extra sparking of joy, I have a little present for you and I can't wait. I'm going to send it to you, obviously, but. Oh, no, it fell down. Um, It was so cute and it's thematically linked to your hobbies and interests. (laughs) Of which there are many. It's a little needle minder mm. in the shape of... It's tarot! Yeah. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I need to start another cross-stitch, actually. I've just been so ficking busy. 
But yes, so I'm going to send that to you, and I'm very excited because it's so pretty. So, anyway, it's been sitting up there all week, and I've been like, don't tell her, Cute. but I had to. I want you to be excited about something. Thank you. All right. Well, this week we're reading chapters 6 through 10 through the theme of complaining. Do you have a story for us, Jen? Well, yeah, I guess it's sort of a story, but more a, a pondering. Um, so I love complaining. Big fan of complaining. <laughs> um, for one, because I think it's better out than in, and it's a good way to bond with people. Like, if you're waiting in line or whatever, a little bit of light complaining just makes you feel connected because you share the sense of dissatisfaction, right? So it's just like this nice little bonding moment. But what I've noticed about myself is that often my complaining is done as a joke. Um, look, I like making people laugh and complaining is a cheap laugh, especially combined with my natural overdramatics. So, <laughs> you know, for example, in the warmer months, I attend an outdoors boot camp and all I do while I'm there is complain. So I complain from the minute I arrive, being like, it's too early, it's cold, everything's horrible, like, why are we here? And they'll be like, okay, you have to do 50 burpees. And I'm like, ugh, burpees, <laughs> must we? And I just carry on and I'm overdramatic and like the trainer doesn't take me seriously and the fellow boot camp attendees don't take me seriously. And, you know, they, I get a chuckle and whether or not they actually think I'm funny doesn't matter because I think I'm funny. So I continue yes. to do it. I think it just works and it's really funny and fun to do. And I don't think that's how a lot of people complain. A lot of the things I complain about don't actually bother me. Like, obviously there are exceptions to that rule, but sometimes I just complain for the lols. And when people don't know me, they think I'm being serious and they're quite earnest about it mm. or will like complain back at me about it. or And then I'm just like, wait, what? You know, I don't actually care about this, right? Like, this is not actually a thing. And I think that's because the tricky thing with complaining is, yes, it feels good, but it can very quickly drag you down. And you just get into the space where everything is kind of terrible all of the time and you just feel stressed and negative. Whereas my experience of it has swung so far the other way that it's gone this kind of like nihilistic, existential, fun times way. And yeah, when I'm complaining, it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't actually touch me. And what I've noticed is I think there's a difference between complaining and venting. And when something really bothers me, I will vent or, you know, rant, which I think is, yeah, a different thing. And venting to me yeah. is like serious business. When I'm venting, it's purely about getting something out of my system. It's not about dialogue or community. It's just word vomit. So I rant about like the patriarchy and social media and economic inequality and discrimination and the big things that make life hard for people. Whereas when I complain about the little frustrations of life, like spilling coffee on myself or, you know, those little things in the face of the big things are just kind of funny to me. So I think of them differently. Yeah. I like that. I like that distinction as well, because I was also trying to think of where the line is between when you have a little whinge about something. It, like when it's a community building thing like I oh you're complaining about something and I'm complaining about something like to me that's a real minefield because I as a person with ADHD one of the main ways that I connect with people is by like I'm doing now saying this is how I experience it see we have this thing in common but other people often if they're looking for like solutions or they just want to be heard they're like she just started talking about herself and she has no concept of the fact that I'm hurting. And so it's really tricky for me to like, I tend to just listen and I don't really know if I'm allowed to complain because it's gone really badly for me in the past. So mm. I think I'm a bit like you in that all my complaints are kind of like ridiculous and overblown and very much for the laugh because if I actually say the real thing, then what if I am taking something from someone else? You know, there's that kind of scared, there's that fear there for me. Yeah. But I do love having a grand whinge when I need to. It's a really, really lovely thing. It's just a nice catharsis, isn't it? Like, you just get it out. Yes. Mm. 
Shall I read the chapter summary? Yes, please. Okay. So a week in, Anna's getting the hang of school and even rustles up the courage to order breakfast on her own. Spoiler, the staff all speak English. She's been worried for absolutely nothing. She's been staying in, but St. Clair comes to save her from her anxiety exile, only to be briefly interrupted by a phone call from Toph. Anna and St. Clair have a magical night walking around the city, only for St. Clair's girlfriend Ellie to appear and whisk him away. Anna's trying to become better friends with Rashmi and invites her to a movie. In less encouraging classmate news, Amanda decides to humiliate Anna by picking her last for the class scavenger hunt. On the other hand... Anna finally realizes that Paris is lousy with cinemas, and she literally cannot wait to start watching all the movies ever. She is so naive, the fact that she didn't realize (laughs) that Paris is cinemas. I'm like, you're supposed to be this film buff. How do you not know that the French love cinema? Like, French cinema is a whole thing. Like, I feel like you should know that. It is. But I, I, because I was thinking about this too, but I'm looking at it from the benefit of having lived in another country, which does have a lot of American media influence input i've lived here for like 17 years or 16 years or something when i lived in the u.s i had like no concept of other countries at all except as like postcard images and Mm. you're really not taught that in school like when i was 18 i probably knew less about paris than anna did so i can see her not having any idea that like there's a cinema everywhere because why would she I guess, yeah, like, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, she might have a very sheltered view of the world because she hasn't left the States and, you know, you don't have exposure in that sense, as you just said. Yeah. But if she claims, like, she wants to be a film critic. She really loves film. Like, she goes on this Wes Anderson tangent in this section being like, he's just amazing, you know, all that kind of, like, auteur film stuff. But in a very 16, 17-year-old way. Yeah, her youth is really showing here and I love it. But I do still think that if you were that, if this was your special interest subject, I feel like you should know French cinema as a thing. (laughs) I just don't think you can be into film and not know that. Yeah. But yeah. But maybe it's like, you don't like not realizing that most of LA is not actually film stars. You know what I mean? Hmm. I wonder if it's sort of a parallel there. But I kind of love that she was like, wait, what? Like, I love that it was this lightning moment for her that she got so excited that she was literally dizzy and needed to sit down because she couldn't think about how, like, there was so much opportunity all of a sudden. Made me really happy. I love that Etienne also, he says to her, you know, on page 87, you honestly didn't notice. And I'm like, no, she's been too busy complaining. (laughs) Well, she's been hiding because it's scary. She's just really scared about going out and doing anything. You definitely see her anxiety, right? Like she talks about wanting to invite someone else to the cinema so she can write down everything they say and do so that then she can go later by herself and replicate it. But she can't go in the first instance by herself. She needs that guidebook. Yes. I am this person. I am in this photo. I do not like it, but this is 100% a great tactic. And the other thing is, is if you need someone to do that for you, you can do it. There's a clause in there. I don't know how it works. I've seen it as the mom friend clause where like if you can't, do the thing but someone else needs you to you're more likely to be able to do it i don't know what it is so if someone was like anna help i don't know how to go to the cinema she'd be like right we're gonna figure it out we'll do it and it would not be a problem but because she is scared of doing it i wonder if it helps if you know someone else is also scared and that's what motivates you it's like the, the, mm. the fear of not knowing but someone else knowing or you being on your own and not knowing yeah. that is what the scary bit is but if someone else also doesn't know you have community there's a community and not knowing together so it's not yeah. as hard to do exactly yeah Mm. I kind of love that. I wanted to talk a little bit about complaining because I think you definitely touched on this, but I wanted to talk about there's like good complaining and bad complaining. That's how I sort of marked it up. Mm -hmm. I thought that like, yes, you're right that it's communication. 
it's a way of offering like a low vulnerability connection. And also like it's kind of a cheat code for small talk. I know you say all the time that you hate small talk, but isn't having a whinge to a stranger when you're stuck in a confined space kind of like you can have a whinge about the weather or like, can you believe this is taking so long? That's small talk and it gets you in like a good feeling place. Yeah, complaining is the only kind of small talk I will engage with. Like if I'm waiting for the lift at work, I'm like, these lifts are always broken. Or if I'm in the lift, I'm like, ugh, I can't believe it's Monday. Like it's always through the lens yeah. of complaining. Yeah, yeah. But it works, right? Because it gives you that, you have that connection, but it's really low vulnerability, it's low stakes. But you're right also that it can be unhealthy and it can be like if you start to complain all the time, then it just becomes this vicious cycle where you feel bad. So you complain more. You start to believe your own nonsense is what I put down. But one of the things I really noted was that there is a way of complaining about things that you're not like that haven't happened. And Mm. people often do that. And I was trying to think in my own life, do I do that? Do I complain about things that haven't happened yet? And sometimes I do when I catastrophize. But that tends to be where I'm like, and then a meteor is going to hit us and we're all going to catch on fire and die. And like I usually finish it up in a funny way because I'm just being ridiculous and I know it. But I didn't see that a lot with Anna. I did see her having anxiety about not knowing how things would go. But she said at one point, like, I really don't like surprises. So that makes sense to me that she would have that anxiety about not knowing what's going to happen or where she's going to go or what's going to go on. Yeah, she doesn't really complain about the future. Like, I do all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But she doesn't. You got your commune idea started and, like, when the heat death of the planet begins, you know exactly where you're going to go. But not even that. Like, if there's something, if there's a meeting coming up oh, or there's, yeah. like, a team event, I'm always like, ugh. There's a scene in Seinfeld where Elaine, like, literally, like, pulls her fingers down her face and she's like, ugh, it's going to be awful. And that's me. Like, in all those situations, I'm always like, ugh. We are all Elaine at some point. I'm Elaine I whenever I order her. a big salad. I love her. I love when she's like, I'll go if I don't have to talk. Also me. Big mood. Um... I did see complaining as a bonding thing, definitely. Like, I feel like Anna with her classmates. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she complains about the professor only insisting on speaking in French only. I'm like, that's not that unusual for a, a language teacher to insist on in speaking the language that they um, are teaching, but sure. But in French one, that's so hard. Oh. She bonds with Dave over that, which is fine. And then she, yeah. you know, she bonds with um, Etienne when Josh and Rashmi are just always making out. And they're like, yeah, Ugh. I caught that yeah. too. And I love that. And then she was like, do I even want to know the answer to this question? But she asks him anyway about how long he and Ellie were together, which I thought was really lovely. Like, she's putting all of these boundaries up, which I do want to talk about later. I do want to address that at some point because I think it's really important that she's aware of her feelings. I think she's actually surprisingly self-aware. Um, she's good when people complain to her. Like, Bridget called to complain about not getting mm. the, the drum chair. I thought that was really nice. Like, she just bolstered her friend, helped her out, let her talk, let her talk and complain about it. They talked till 3 a.m. Like, she put her own sleep on hold to be there for a friend which was really beautiful and I think that she complains a lot about being perceived as American which has been holding her back mm. and I love that at one point Sinclair just says on page 75 he says you have to get over this you must get over this he's not letting the complaints be rooted in reality yeah I think that's just a bit of youth as well coming through like you know he talks about her having lots of stereotypes you know you ought to stop listening to stereotypes and start forming your own opinion on page mm. 74 and I think that's where it comes from it's like you know she has this preconceived idea of what people think about Americans so therefore she's hyper conscious of her own Americanness, right like yeah she is just very it's the insecurity of youth like that self-consciousness about everything that you do yeah and it's really hard to not know what you're doing I mean I could barely get like I don't know any French except for bonjour and merci and like I remember how daunting it was to try and order but everybody is actually quite friendly and they will help you like I mean 
the whole stereotype about Americans in Paris, it might be true. I was there during one of the most touristy times. Like, like we were there when it was extremely touristy, right? Mm. Middle of July. But everyone was still really friendly and lovely. I didn't feel like there was anyone who was unkind. No. Our ragtag group of friends. <laughs> you know? The only time I've ever experienced rudeness in Paris was when I was with a, a British person, like an English person. But yeah. I don't really buy it. Like people, in my experience, when you're overseas and you're trying to speak in a different language, people are very kind and considerate. And sometimes they will interrupt you and just speak in English. But I think they're doing that as a kindness. They're like, oh, I'll just help you. Like, I don't think it comes from a judgmental place. No, no, no. And everyone recognizes that people who learn English as a first language generally don't have a second language. And so they're at a disadvantage. Like most people who are bilingual understand that the English supremacy is actually quite harmful. Just like the patriarchy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about her complaining, but I don't think she was, I think she's very overall, very optimistic. Like she complains, but it's kind of like to figure out the problem or to express herself. It doesn't seem like she's fatalistic or a martyr, but if something's bothering her, she's not going to sit back and internalize it. She's not going to gnaw over it. I saw it very much as like complaining as a coping mechanism, even Bridget complaining. It's just the way of like dealing with your feelings. So you just complain, you verbalize it and then you move on. I think Anna is quite good at moving on. She doesn't dwell on the things that upset her. Like, you know, she was upset about being in Paris, but she's sort of gone, oh, well, I'm here now. You know, she could have just been depressed for the entire year, but she's not. Yeah. 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 I do think there's an example of not Anna complaining, but someone else complaining where like sometimes when you're complaining, you can be unkind without realizing it, you know? Mm. And I think that happens when she's trying to talk to Rashmi and she's saying, hey, come to this movie with me. And Rashmi's like, oh, is it an old movie? I hate old movies. They're all like, and I just thought, well, like, that's like, here's somebody who's like asking you to go do a thing. And it's just it's a bit hard, I think, when you're like faced with this person who's like, oh, really? Okay. But Anna seems to take it in a stride. I mean, she says, yippee, <laughs> when Rashmi finally says she'll go. But I do wonder, like, that's something that complaining can do. It can actually maybe put you off, put people off of you, or maybe convey something that you're not really willing to convey. I don't know. Yeah, there's a little bit of negativity that comes with that, right? Like, people don't, you don't really want to spend time around negative people. If someone is complaining all the time, that is annoying. That does drag you down. You're sometimes yeah. like, you're, you know, you don't want that. Life is hard. So unless it's for the lols, like obviously a joke. I just sometimes think, oh, what are you complaining about today? You know, like every day is mm. a complaint. It's just hard to deal with that. But I do get the feeling that Rashmi is just not, she doesn't know how she feels about Anna yet. She's not comfortable with this new person in the dynamic and therefore she doesn't really want to hang out with her which I also sympathize with yeah yeah I get it Rashmi is very much like I already have my friends but okay new random person and that's okay but I love that Anna is still trying um I think that was all I had for complaining she actually did very well I thought she would have way more whinging but she did all her whinging in the last chapter so (laughs) I did love her like complaining about how far they're walking she's like we're still in the Latin quarter but we've been walking for and he's like 10 15 minutes (laughs) lol hey urban sprawl is a real thing when you live in a city and you have a car you have to go a lot further to get the same place I don't know it's weird yeah I mean she's obviously very shocked that he doesn't have a license which is not unusual in Europe for people to not have licenses It's not even unusual here, I think. Lots of kids wait. I think Simon would have waited if his parents had allowed him to. But they were like, no, you're learning. Here's your teacher. Go learn to drive. Yeah, it's just like you have options. When you have public transport that is reliable and quick and easy and cheap, why would you have a car? Yeah. Man, that would have been great. I could not imagine growing up with public transport. My kids have their own Opal cards already. How cool is that? I mean, unless they try and run away from home, they can actually get quite far on those. Hmm. (laughs) Note to self, put those Apple tracker tags in their backpacks. 
<laughs> I just I think Sinclair is really lovely. There was an interesting there's there were a couple of moments where he's not complaining so much, but when they have this really great bonding moment where they're both talking about how crappy their dads are. And I thought it was a really lovely example of how when you complain about something and someone has a similar complaint, you can be like, ah, see, you get it. Because I think that's one of the foundational things about them is that they both really get each other. Like mm. they fundamentally click. I mean, they're almost already best friends. Like they just hang out all the time. And we're like, this is the second section that we're examining. And already like he's hanging out with her and he pesters her when she's like, oh, you're probably going out with Ellie. And he's like, how do you know what my plans are? Did you ask me? How do you know if I'm going out with Ellie? Mm. Like he wants her to ask him to go to the movies, but he doesn't want to say that because he does have a girlfriend, but he wants to spend time with her. Like they're really good friends. And I love that that little moment of complaining where they talk about the bad dad club and their fathers being members of the bad dad club. Like that was really lovely. Good moment of connection. Yeah. I also just want to say, I think Ellie she sounds lovely. You know that moment Anna says, yeah. oh, she doesn't seem upset that he's been out with me all night. And I'm like, good, she shouldn't be. Like, let's just dismantle this thing. Yeah. This jealous girlfriend type. Like, you can't hang out with other girls. You can't be friends with other girls. Like, it's a very real thing. And when you are in a situation where you're mates with a guy and there is a girlfriend, there's always this fear that you're like, oh, is this going to be a thing? Like, because I, yeah. I am not interested in him. But, you know, okay, <laughs> Anna is interested in him. But you know what yeah. I mean? It's just like, uh, don't make this a thing. And you don't know how the girlfriend's going to react. And it's such a relief when they just like chill about it. Because yeah. I think media and society have conditioned us to think that they're not going to be chill about it, which is not a yeah. cool stereotype to have either. Yeah, I get that. I think, I think Ellie's really lovely and it makes me sad that we'd ever get her story. I want her mm. story too. Because she does seem like a completely nice person who's just not navigating the whole leaving school but being in the same city thing. Yeah. And like having a friend group who is younger than you at that age as well, you know, like there's that throwaway line about Meredith and Rashmi being a bit grumpy because is she too good for them now? You know, how hard yeah. it is for her to have to adjust to a, a university environment. And oh gosh, it's just, it's rough. It's rough for her. Yeah, and she probably wants to be back there with them but also she's got to make all of these other new friends and like the thing about soap is that it's extremely insular like mm. Anna has said you know she feels like she's in high school all the time because she can't get away from it ever like if you're not in the school and you're not in the residence halls or you're not going out with your friends like what are you doing you're with these people all the time so kind of trying to duck back into that would be really tricky for Ellie I think I, I'm the kind of person who's like no okay clean break that's done like we had a time the time is done but yeah I don't know it's a lot. I really feel for I really feel for her and I feel for Anna for really wanting to like her but not letting herself like her because she likes Sinclair and doesn't want to like Sinclair. Like it's it's a tricky feeling when you're a teenager and you have these feelings you know you're not supposed to be having. Yeah, and I thought it was a lovely line. Um, where is it? You know, page sixty seven. I don't want to feel this way around him. I want things to be normal. I want to be his friend, not another stupid girl holding on for something that will never happen. Like that's such a real feeling when you just don't want to mm -hmm. feel what you're feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. But I do feel sometimes she gets in her internal monologue, she gets a bit not like other girlsy. I'm like, yeah. Anna, calm down. <laughs> She definitely does. And she's like, I don't flirt. I don't get close. I like push his arm and I roll my eyes at him. Yeah. And, and like, basically, this is this book is not this year. Right. So, I mean, it was published in what, 2010. Yeah, it must be. Yeah. 2010. So this is a 12 year old book. So we're still going through it. Like we're, we, we can't help but go through it with our 2022 eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is very different. But yeah. But I remember the first time I read this, I was just kind of like, eh, that's, that sounds normal. Well, this is what I was just thinking. So I read this for the first time in 2017. And I'm like, wow, 2017 Jen was quite different to 2020 Jen. No, 2022 Jen, rather. Mm. It's like the same with the Doctor Who stuff where I'm like, wow, 2006 Jen had some weird things going on that I did not know <laughs> she had going on. 
I haven't watched any of those episodes, but it is such a delight listening to you and so talk about them. And her little fake vomit thing makes me laugh every time. <laughs> I want to invent a drinking game that's like, every time Sophie pretends to spew, take a shot. We do talk about, how, like, we're always like, why do we make so many weird noises? Doing the Lord's work. I will say just another moment of Anna's naivete is when she, you know, um, Etienne's in her room and he sees the family crest on the pillow and he's like, mm. it's French. And she's like, I always assumed it was in Latin or some other dead language. I'm like, it's so obviously French. Like, even if you only know bonjour, like, looking at Tout Pavor should be like, yeah, yeah, that's French. This is true. But if that's something you've grown up seeing your whole life, are you ever going to think about it like an adult seeing it for the first time? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, taking it out of context. Yeah. I feel like her granddad should have told her. <laughs> Come on, granddad. I, I actually really love that she's got this real connection and she has a tartan bedspread and <laughs> it's really cute. It is cute. And I love the, the fact that he goes in and starts touching all of her things and then she does this great faux pas of, you can touch anything of mine you like. And he's like, embarrassed and she's embarrassed and it's just a really cute really young teen moment of like oh my gosh why did I say that floor open up and swallow me whole now <laughs> I also really love that he clocked her moving everything back as he was touching it and then he apologizes mm. like I'm sorry I shouldn't have done that I'm like yeah no that's good good yeah. consent is important really important there's one thing I think about Anna that um, I wanted to flag as being very young. When she has a crush on someone, she thinks everyone likes them, and this is a not true. So she says the same thing about Toph that she says about um, St. Clair. On page 60, she says, everyone likes Toph. Well, sometimes he annoys the managers, but that's because he tends to forget his work schedule and call in sick. And I'm just like, this boy's unreliable. He is oh not my gosh. good value. And then on page 91, she says, St. Clair is just friendly. The whole school likes him, and why wouldn't they? He's smart and funny and polite. And I'm like, that seems nice. I, I, as a parent, can co-sign this boy. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's that, like, she thinks everyone likes these boys that she likes, which is, yeah, something, of course, we all fall into that trap of. Like, Topher's so funny to me because the way she describes him, and she's like, he's so fun and cool and everyone likes him. I'm like, he's just a dropkick. This guy yep. is a bit of a dropkick. Yep. He's in a band that's never played a show because they can't get their crap together. He's always calling in sick. He can't remember his schedule. Like, this is not a good dude. Yeah. He is trouble with a capital trouble. And not like fun trouble. Not like exciting trouble. No, like burnout trouble. Run away. Run away, Anna. He's not for you. Um, and she knows this. This is the thing. She actually has this really clear moment of like wish when she's at point zero and she's wishing for something. She's thinking about like, well, if I go back, then it's only what we'll have Christmas break and the summer and that's it and then I move and go to uni like what what am I doing what am I thinking like she knows this already and she hates thinking about it because she still wants to hold on to the like hope and optimism and good feeling of having this crush yeah well, do you also think that when he calls her and he asks for Bridget's number and he does it under the pretense that he wants Bridget to be their drummer right but I am just like he it does this is not why he wants Bridget's number like sure maybe but I don't think you know like I mean it's right on the heels of or it's right before she says, yeah, Bridget is the prettier, um, cooler version of me, which is kind of telling. Like, it's that's what how Anna views the two of them. Like, Bridget is yeah. a better half or something. Which comes back to that thing of her being worried about being replaced, right? Like, that insecurity of youth. This idea that, yeah, that she is replaceable and that Bridget is the better of her. So, she, yeah, she's, like, prettier, smarter, and more talented. Not true. No mm. one is as tidy as you, Anna. Or is good at making food-related messes. Can I also just say that I love that Etienne is like, I love me mum, he says, with matter-of-factly, with no trace of teenage same. I'm like, yeah, you go, boy. Get yeah. it. 
I think the reason that he's so insistent about being an American and not British is that his mom is American and his dad is British. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm American. Like, that's he wants to align himself with his mom. He loves spending time with his mom. I do think it's a bit problematic that Napoleon is his hero just because he happens to be short. I'm like, dude, <laughs> no. I like that he's a little insecure about his height, but Anna doesn't think it's a problem. That's probably my favorite dynamic in there. Like, flirting is that he's like, what, is it because I'm short? I'm only an inch shorter than you. And she's like, three inches and you're wearing boots. Come on. Like, it's really <laughs> cute. I love it. We stand one short king and it's Etienne St. Clair. The other youth thing I thought with calling out was just how you have all these kids misbehaving and like this expectation that you would. So everyone's like shocked that it's her first weekend unsupervised in Paris and she's just going to spend it at home, like in her room alone. Like that can't go. And, you know, Meredith makes the comment that, you know, the kids are only rowdy. The juniors are only rowdy because they're not used to it. You know, it'll wear Mm. off after the first week. And Anna's like, will it though? And um, (laughs) that comment about how there's always a junior hitting, a drunk junior hitting on the girl behind the front desk, which, you know, RIP that girl. That would be so horrific. I do think that that first like taste of freedom is a whole thing. Kids really do go nuts for it. And I think when you're allowed to drink, like, I do know that it's a little different here because the drinking age is younger. Like, it's 18 here in Australia, and it was 21 when I was in school. But when I, I remember, like, I turned 21, and then I moved here. And, like, by the time I had moved here, all of my peer-aged friends in the States were, like, really getting into going out and enjoying bars. And everyone here was like, well, we're in our last year of uni. We did all of that already. Mm. That sounds terrible. <laughs> like they had, I just missed out on the whole idea of partying because it wasn't a thing. Um, and I'm not sad about that. I do love that. Yeah, she's kind of like, why wouldn't I just stay home? I like my little room. I've set it up exactly perfectly. The corners align. I just need to get some Windex, and I'm good. It's just that kind of expectation, I guess. Like, that's the peer pressure situation. It's not peer pressure, but it's just peer expectation, in yeah. a way. Like, you know, you see that with schoolies, right? So after the HSE, whatever it's called these days, the kids all go off to the Gold Coast for a week and yeah. to be rowdy and horrible in spring break in the States, right? That seems like so much expense and worry. Yeah, I, I thought... I think Anna's just not being... Like, I think she would be willing to do this. And I think later there's a scene in the book where she does get fairly drunk. Hey, what do you make of the bullying that she's experiencing? Oh, from what's her face? Amanda, yeah. Amanda. Well, Amanda's obviously just jealous, like all bullies. Mm. It's just so petty. It's almost too... I don't know. It feels too petty for the age that they are, in a way. I'm like, come on, guys. This is primary school. Like, I'm not going to pick you for my team. Nonsense. And like the joke about, like, the comment she makes about her looking like a skunk. I'm like, oh, so basic. Like, for me personally, that would not affect me because I'm like, you're going to have to try harder. But I can understand why (laughs) Anna, you know, she's new in this environment. She's already, like, super anxious and super heightened and her emotions are up and her adrenaline is spiking. Like, this is horrible. She's just trying to get by. Like, this girl should just leave her alone. At least Rashmi came through and was, like, nice about it. Like, I think I think it's really rough. I was not happy with that. There's no, like, it's just, there's no point in making people feel small. Well, it's just the, there's just a hole inside yourself if you're doing that, right? Like, you are not yeah. happy with yourself, so therefore you are picking on someone else to make yourself feel better. And it's amazing that once you feel good about the person that you are, you don't notice other people, like, you don't do that to other people, but also other people doing that to you cannot affect you because you're like, mm, yeah. that's cool. Which yeah. is the thing that you get with maturity, right? Like, that's just being young. And work and therapy sometimes. You do need therapy for that. Yeah, that's true. Love a bit of therapy. Everybody should go to therapy. It's so helpful. 
Uh, did you have any tangential marginalia? Um, I did. I just kind of love that little throwaway line on page 49 where Anna's talking about her English teacher and she's like, every morning she hosts a discussion of like water for chocolate as if we're in a book club and not some boring required class. And I love that. One, because it's like our little podcast, you know, book club, you mm. didn't know you needed. But also I love this as a teaching approach instead of like forcing the kids to just go through the motions doing this really like forced study. This teacher is like, let's have a chat. Let's talk about this book. You have to read this book. Let's have a conversation and open dialogue about it. And I just think that's lovely. So, you know, good teaching. A++. I love it. And I love that book. And I love the movie as well. I've not read it or seen it. So I should get on that. Uh, At one point, her true love is marrying someone else. And she's been made to prepare all of the food for it. And as she's cooking, she cries. And her tears fall on the food and the entire wedding party gets sick and throws up because that is the power of her grief. I just feel like I should flag that because it's an amazing scene where she cries one little tear and like the entire wedding party is just spewing everywhere because they're they're eating her grief literally. It's It's so good but it really is this intensely like physical, it's not even like physical sexy, it's just like everything has a physical reaction. Mm. All of the feelings are expressed as physical experiences. It's interesting you mentioned that because on page 61, you know, there's she's Googling, you know, interpretations of the book as she's writing her essay. And there's that little excerpt that's like, throughout the novel, heat is a symbol for sexual desire. Tita can control the heat inside a kitchen, but the fire inside her own body is a force for both strength and destruction. And I mark that. I'm like, oh, okay, this is like Anna's feelings for Etienne. And then literally on page 62, she says that, like Anna mm-hmm. says that herself. I'm like, wow, this book is as subtle as a sledgehammer. It's going to be like, <laughs> you do not have to look for the metaphor. I will beat you over the head with it. It's great because it gives you all of the text that you're supposed to read, not all of the re- ones that you read in high school. But I mean, like, I definitely read, like, Water for Chocolate in uni. Maybe not for uni, but I read it in uni. And, like, at one point, she's she's given poems that are ones you would get assigned as well. Like, I love it because she's actually getting... I mean, Stephanie Perkins is genius in the way that, like, she's put real-world text that you would get assigned into this YA story, which is just a silly little love story, quote-unquote. But you actually understand it better because you have more context. So the intertextuality, I'm here for it. It's just interesting to like, you know, it's very much a YA book and probably more a YA book than we've read before because Mm. it does spell things out for you. You don't have to go looking for it. It's like, it's quite jarring in a way because we've read a lot of books with a lot of subtext and we've delved, spent a lot of time with that. And I'm like, there's no subtext here. It's just like, here it is, posted on my forehead. Let's go. It's all text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like the lack of subtlety. It's good. I needed an easier (laughs) dive in after our nice long break. (laughs) Yeah, it does feel, I feel like it's like, oh I don't need to read it six times to get a hold on a sentence or like it does feel a bit like I'm cheating because it's slightly less brain power required but it's nice um did you have anything else for tangential I only wanted to talk about that bit when they're standing outside the church St. Etienne's church and she Mm. thinks about what her mum is doing she's like I picture my mum like what is like is she doing work is she picking up my brother or were they watching the empire strikes back and she has this line I have no idea and it bothers me and I thought it was really interesting that she noted that feeling within herself like this yeah it's such a real thing that when you leave home and you realize that you know, people are having a life without you and they're going to continue to have a life without you. And not only that, they're not going to tell you what that life is because you're not telling them what your life is. You're not calling home every day being like, this is what I did today. But the the reverse also happens. And that's that can be quite jarring when it's your first time away from home. Yes, I'm not happy about it. Whenever my daughter goes away to camp and she has three whole days and I'm like, what did you do? Tell me every minute. I want to be part of it. I like knowing about these things. Anyway, 
but yeah, it is, it's a nice, it's kind of an interesting feeling to be like, I don't know what's happening at home. I don't really know what is going on. Like, what am I, what's happening? Even though I could tell you what might be happening, you don't actually know. You're not actually there. The lived experience is different. Hmm. Poor Anna. What a transition. What a transition not to have chosen for herself. Yeah. The only other thing is like when she talks about Meredith and how Meredith is like giving her the evil eye when she's hanging out with Etienne and she's like, maybe I'm doing her a favor. I'm stronger than she is since I've known him, not known him as long. I'm like, that is a grim way to put that, to be like, I'm doing her a favor by taking up this boy's attention. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> tell yourself what you need. Yeah, she's trying to figure out how to be friends with both of them, but not hurt Meredith because she really is. I think she's so cognizant of the fact that it will hurt Meredith if anything happens and she just has ruled it out so many times and it keeps coming up like even if he weren't with Ellie I couldn't because Meredith has these feelings she says Meredith has first dibs which is weird but um probably in keeping with the time but she's she's just won't she won't do it she won't do it which I love I think she's just worried so much that she would hurt Meredith and I think that's really beautiful did you have tangential I had a couple I really like how her attraction to Sinclair is described um she talks about how attractive he is but you know, he's a different kind of attractive, like a different species altogether. That's on page 55. And then she talks about his hair. I love how much she loves his hair. On page 57, if there were an Olympics competition in hair, Sinclair would totally win, hands down. 10.0, gold medal. And then the next page, page 58, Sinclair smiles to himself. I like your stripe, he says. He reaches out and touches it lightly. You have perfect hair. It's such a nice parallel that they both really like this one thing about each other. And I think it's just a silly thing, but you know when you get a compliment that just lights you all the way up? I feel like that's what that moment was for her, and it just made me a little happy. So mine were yeah. all about the crushy feelings. I thought I wanted, I just wanted to enjoy the crushy feelings for a bit. Especially because Amanda makes fun of her hair, so to know that it's something that he really likes is quite nice. Yeah, and it's something she chose, right? It's not like her hair is this natural color and he likes it. It's, it's something she did to it that made her... You know, that made her stand out, that made her look different, that someone else is attacking her for, as you said. But then he likes it. He likes the way that she's chosen to do it, which I think is really nice. It's like when someone compliments your shirt and you're like, thank you, I picked it out myself. You just mm -hmm. feel good. You feel nice. I think that was it for my marginalia. I really did like this this week's reading. I like that she had that wonderful wander and got to see some of the sights. I love the way she describes seeing Notre Dame for the first time and seeing it on the island. And I'm like, yeah, it's great. Everything about Paris is great. That was the first time I saw it was with you. Mm. A whole five years ago, I think. It was. Maybe six years ago now. Mm. Were you with me when the Italian girl was making the jokes about don't put a coin on it, you take the money and make your own luck? No. It was so good. So we were all standing around and I said, I think you, she said, why is there, why are there coins here? I think she was Italian. And I said, well, I think the idea is that you put a coin down and you make a wish. And, and she said, well, maybe you could just take the money and make your own luck. <laughs> that was very pragmatic. I left a coin. I made my wish. It was good. Cute. It's nice to have traditions like that. And then yeah. I got in trouble for taking photos in the bookshop. Oh, and Shakespeare and Co. Mm-hmm. Uh, lol. <laughs> I had to get a picture of the Feed the Starving writers. I'm so sorry. It was too good. I didn't always have to have a ban in there about taking photos, but, you know, Instagram. Mm. If you're not doing it for the gram, what are you even doing? Why are you living if you're not documenting it? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that was it for me. Just a, like, nice read this week. It was nice to see her finding her feet and finding joy in some things. Uh, do you have in-depth marginalia? I do. So my in-depth of marginalia is actually from that scene 
um, at point zero, so at page 85, mm. she is standing there and, you know, they've arrived and Etienne has told her to make a wish and she's thinking about it. And, you know, she's like, what do I want? It's a difficult question. And then she says, you know, so what do I wish for? Something I'm not sure I want, someone I'm not sure I need or someone I know I can't have. She's like, screw it. Let the fates decide. I wish for the thing that is best for me. So I think this relates to the theme and I guess it's complaining because decisions are hard. Like, how do you decide mm. what you want? How do you make a decision? So that could be cost. Like, you can view that as a complaint. But yeah. I think it's mostly youth because you don't know who you are. Like, you're still in progress. You're still percolating. You're still in the oven baking, right? Yeah. You're not done yeah. yet. So how can you know what you want? Which is why it's so messed up that we send them off at, to university at that age. Because Lord knows, you know, you're not ready yet to make a decision that's going to, like, define your life. But it yeah. doesn't actually. But it feels that it, that it will. I think it kind of reminded me. I don't know why, but it reminded me of like Harry Potter. And you know how this in the seventh book, Harry has to decide between Hallows and Horcruxes, and it's these yeah. two very important things, and he wants both of them so badly. One because it's the right thing, but also the other because it'll mean something to him. It's something that he wants, something that he's missing and craving. And then you know he makes the decision to go with the Horcruxes, and he walks into the forest, and he's sort of just so resigned to it. And I feel like that was him also just letting go and being like, let the fates decide. I'm just yeah. going to, I'm done with making a decision. And I've definitely felt this in my life every time I've made decisions about leaving countries, moving around, changing jobs. You don't know what the right thing is. And that's the worst bit. Like, there's no way for you to know if the decision that you're making is the right one at the moment. Like, in retrospect, you can look back and go, yeah, of course that was the right decision. But when you're making that choice, it's hard and it's, like, challenging yeah. And I think it's so mature to sit there and go, I wish for the thing that is best for me. Because it's such a good thing to keep in mind. And I think that's what I want to keep in mind going forward. It's just like, it's not about what's going to make you the happiest because you can't always be happy. And it's not about, you know, what you want right now, but to think about what is actually in the long term going to be best for me. Do I want to go for a run? No. But is it going to be better for me in the long term to go for a run? Yes. Then you mm. do the thing. So yeah, I just think that's a really mature way to look at it and something that I want to do more of. That's really great. I love that. I want what is best for me. That is a great thing. We should definitely think about that more. Mm. Adding things to, as that tweet, do, should, does this need to be said? Does this need to be said by me? Does this need to be said by me right now? Is this the best thing for me? Is this the best thing? Is this the best thing for me right now? Like maybe there's a similar breakdown you can use when you're wanting something, but you're not sure how it's going to shake down. Mm. Good little framework to maybe work on. Yeah. What was your in-depth marginalia? Ah, mine was on page 95. So I wanted to touch on the bit where Anna is trying to drum up the courage to go to the cinemas. She's finally noticed her literally everywhere, but she's scared to go alone. So she's mm -hmm. made a plan, as we talked about, and decided to reach out to Rashmi to offer to go to the cinema with her as like kind of a way of furthering their friendship. So she's getting out there. And the quote is, page 95, I take a deep breath to steady my nerves. It's ridiculous how difficult a question can be when the answer means so much. Want to go to the movies? And then on page 96, after some waffling, she gives a resigned glance. Fine, but I'm picking the next movie. Yippee! <laughs> mm -hmm. So... I thought it related to the themes really well because Rashmi complains about the movie, about the genre, about having to do anything at all, which is like pretty relatable. I also don't ever want to do anything. Anna's discomfort with treading a new path alone is something she's aware of, but the fact that she folds that into wanting to try for a deeper friendship with Rashmi is kind of genius. Her reaction is really typical of being like young and excited. She's feeling like a success at having asked her friend to go out, even if her friend is kind of reluctant about the plan. Rashmi's treating it like a dentist appointment, but Anna's excited like it's Disneyland and bless her mm -hmm. for that. It's really lovely. 
Um, and what it reminds me of is in real life, I have a friend who is super hard to pin down like Rashmi is. And I love her. And I know that she cares about me too. It's hard sometimes. It's work. It's not automatic. It's not the way you fall into a friendship and you just vibe. There's effort that's required and there's follow-up that's required. And I have a lot of anxiety and like this person is too cool for me to hang out with. But a couple years ago, I realized it's not that at all. It's just that we go through life in like these completely different ways and our ways of relating to each other are very different. And it's not bad. Mm -hmm. I just don't think we'll ever be as close as I would have liked and maybe still would like to be, but I've made peace with that. And also, like, on the other side of that, I want to point out how important it is to recognize that sometimes it's easier to be brave when you have a friend in tow. I can fake it till mm. I make it if I'm forced to, um, but it's nice to have a buddy when you're not sure what you're doing. So I wanted to take this moment to shout out our friend Mel, who flew to London with me back in 2016 and tolerated all of my anxieties with an abundance of unwarranted generosity. <laughs> so going forward, I want to be more mindful about my complaining. I don't want to be like Rashmi who finds fault with everything Anna is suggesting. The movie's too old-fashioned. It's going to be boring. But I want to recognize that overture as a positive invitation to go deeper with someone. Um, even if they don't suit me perfectly, I might miss out on something really special if I try to make it work for my preferences. There is value in wholeheartedly trying, and I want to be wholehearted. So that's what I'm going to take from that. Lovely. Um, did you have a character you wanted to spotlight? Yeah, so I actually want to spotlight Meredith because I think I really feel for her. You know, she sees someone in need in the previous section. She takes Anna in, folds her into her friend group because she knows that she needs it and she's new and that's scary. And that's such a kind, kind thing, as you said last week. And then she sees Anna get closer with this boy that she really likes and sees her like usurping the friendship group in a little way you know like she she comes in and she muscles in on this and she doesn't mean to do it but for Meredith who's sitting on the outskirts and sees this you know sees Anna and Etienne and Josh and Rashmi going off on their own without her and doing things without her like that's hard it's a hard yeah. thing when you feel like you've done a good thing to someone and then that is like oh everyone likes the new girl better than me I'm not saying that's what Meredith's thinking but I think it would be fair if that is what she was thinking and Especially, you know, seeing her and Etienne mess around and, like, joke around and just knowing that it's something that she really wants. I just I wanted to give her a big hug for that, but that's a hard thing. So, I see you, Meredith. Meredith is the best. Who would you like to spotlight this week? Um, I want to spotlight someone we don't see very much of, and that's Ellie. I think she's really gracious and really lovely, and she's so friendly, and she greets Anna like an old friend. Like, she's excited to meet her. It's really nice that she's that open and excited to meet her, and it's nice that she's like, ah! so great what did you guys do it just makes me sad that Anna can't let herself like her because I feel like they mm. would probably have gotten on okay I think Ellie's probably really a lovely person she's never really a villain in any way which I really love about this book but it is sad that Anna just can't kind of get past that like oh you're dating the boy I like to actually see that she's probably pretty amazing so yeah yeah I love that uh, yeah it's weird how when you like someone and then like, I have friends when they find out that that person is in a relationship, they're like, oh, we hate we hate them. I'm like, no, we don't. I, we don't know this person. Why would we hate them? Well, next week, we're going to be reading chapters 11 through 14 through the theme of curiosity. Love a bit of curiosity. That'll yeah, be fun. It will be. Thank you so much for recording today, Jen. Yeah, thank you. Always wonderful to see you. It's going to be a great week. I have a good feeling about it. Love that. All right. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginalia Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com.